0: gross domestic product often stands as a quintessential yardstick reflecting a nation's economic vitality. But what exactly is it and is it a good barometer of how well a country is doing? I'm Dashan Johan and this is Today I Learned. On the show with me today is Dr. Jeffrey Williams. He's an economist at the Malaysia University of Science and Technology. Welcome to the show, Jeffrey. How are you?
1: Hi, I'm very well. Thanks for your back to me again.
0: So let's start with um, an overview of sorts, Jeffrey. Could you provide a brief background of what GDP stands for and what it represents?
1: So, GDP stands for Gross Domestic Product. And um, actually, sort of the clue is in the, the name. It, it is the total amount of things that are produced in the economy domestically, that is, uh, produced by people who are living and working and uh, involved in businesses within the economy. Um, and uh, it's, it, it, it's measured in uh, a number of different ways. But basically what we're trying to capture is the monetary value of what is being produced in a year or actually in a, each quarter. And in, in some countries, and even in Malaysia, there is also a monthly indicator. And it's basically trying to get a measure of what's being produced because what's being produced is an indicator of what is your income as an economy and then when you have those indicators from a monetary perspective with dollars and cents and ringgit and cent attached to it then you get an idea of the size of the economy and the growth of the economy and that is supposed to give you an idea of the health of the economy right so that's what GDP is about but it it really it focuses only on what's produced inside the country so it doesn't include for example Uh, Malaysian investments overseas and income from Malaysian investments overseas that would be gross national income right and that would be the income generated by any Malaysian national no matter where it was generated so there is a difference between those two.
0: Things. Right. Many people hear about GDP in the news. Uh, whenever we talk about e- the economy, whenever the news reports on the economy, we often hear the word GDP, but what exactly does it encompass? Could you explain the various components that make up GDP?
1: All right, so there are three basic ways that we measure GDP. One is the production approach. As we say, you know, it's gross domestic product. So we try to look at production. And the idea is that whatever is produced, one way or another, will be sold, and that will then turn into income for some people. But the first and the simplest way of looking at it is to look at what what is being produced. Um, And so you look at the um, total amount of economic activity by the productive economic um, uh, organizations, businesses, industries, whatever level it is, Now, of course, they they will sell what they produce to somebody else, because there are intermediate um, forms of production, which has been sold on and then uh, used as components, ingredients, or supplies in other forms of production. So we have to take all of that out, so we're not double counting. Then we add all of this up across all of the productive activities in the economy. There's the measure of uh, GDP by production. That's called the production approach.
0: Right. So you know, GDP um, is often used to as a measure of a country's economic health. Why is GDP considered such an important indicator of
1: economics? Because it helps us to uh, try to understand uh, the, the, first the, the, the level of economic activity and what is being produced, and we put a money value on that. But as I've just mentioned, there is a, a connection between what's being produced and people's income. And so the idea is that uh, by looking at GDP, we can then see what is happening to people's income. And people's income is then a measure of their welfare. So the second way in which we can measure GDP is through the income approach. Hmm. And the income approach says that all of these things that we are producing find their way into wages and salaries because the people producing it are going to be paid. Then it will find its way into revenue and profits for companies, particularly the profitability, and netting out the costs. Then people have savings, and so there's interest in, uh, on the savings which are then invested, and that's income. And then you have income on land and housing and renting out properties, so that's also income. And then you have income from transfer payments from businesses or from the government, and so on. So all of these things that are produced, one way or another finds its way into income, and then this income then gives you an idea of how people are doing in terms of their welfare. So recently, we've had this discussion, haven't we, about compensation of employees, the share of gross value-added or gross domestic product, which is going to employees in the form of wages and salaries. This is part of the income approach. And in Malaysia, this is an issue because... The compensation of employees is less than 35%, so it's almost about a third. And what that means is there's very little going to employees, and the balance goes to the employers and a little bit to the government by way of taxes and so on. But it means basically for every dollar of gross domestic product or value added that is created, uh, only around a third. Goes to employees by way of wages and salaries. They're the guys who are producing it. And about two thirds of it goes to the owners of business by way of the gross operating surplus, which is a form of measuring the profitability. And if you compare that to, for example, Singapore, in Singapore it's, it's more than half. And if you look at some of the high income economies in the world, and the government has a target to be amongst the top 30 high income economies. Within those high income economies, generally speaking, you will see that the share of the income that is created going to the employees is around half or more. And that's why that type of measure um, in terms of the income approach, the compensation of employees, the gross operating surplus and the the balance of that which might go to the government is very important to measuring welfare. That's why we care about GDP in the aggregate. We also care about GDP because of the third way that we measure GDP, which is spending. The expenditure approach to GDP tells us how much um, consumers are spending, how much businesses are spending primarily on investment, how much the government is spending, and then how much um, people overseas are spending on Malaysian products and how much Malaysians are spending on foreign products. That's net trade. And that's an expenditure approach. And that's very important because it tells us about the balance of the economy and how the economy is being driven, what are the main drivers of the economy. So one of the key issues in the Malaysian context is that the economic growth that we've seen recently is being driven largely by extra government spending and extra consumption spending. And that consumption spending is being driven by credit to a large extent. Um, And it's not being driven, for example, by investment. Hmm. And that helps us to understand the balance of the drivers of where the production is coming from. And if the production is primarily um, coming, uh, coming, uh, if the growth is coming primarily from consumption and government spending and not from companies investing, then that's a, an issue, a potentially important structural issue in terms of how you would devise policy to try to improve the investment.
0: Now, when we talk about um, globalisation, um, you know, globalisation basically is they have interconnected economies, economies. Um, now, what's interesting about that is, um, you know, it raises questions about the the sort of geographical origin of production. I'm wondering, Jeffrey, if GDP considers um, the impact of outsourcing and, and supply chain complexities um, on a nation's some sort of growth narrative.
1: Well, GDP in itself uh, wouldn't. I mean, in the sense of how we measure it and what we're using it for in terms of monetizing or putting a monetary value on the total production uh, of the economy or the total expenditures or the total income of the economy. So looking at the GDP itself wouldn't do that. But looking at how the GDP is being generated would incorporate that. And that's a very important issue in terms of understanding the drivers of economic growth and therefore what we need to focus on in terms of economic policy. So if we use the uh, expenditure approach that uh, GDP is the is adding up consumption, investment, government spending, net trade, then you add in some stocks, and then you add in some statistical adjustments, and then you add in some seasonal analysis. It's a, a seasonal adjustment. It's, it's just a statistical measure. The question is, where is this coming from. So if we look at GDP from a production approach, we would ask, all of these resources that we have in the economy, how are we using it? And then the question that you just uh, asked, you know, what is the influence of globalization? What is the influence of technology? What is the influence of um, geopolitical um, policy in terms of where the where where are the resources coming from? How are the resources being used? And um, are we getting the best value out of that? That would be a, a more of a supply side approach to understanding that um, income and um, production and economic growth comes from focusing on the underlying supply the p- potential of the economy, and uh, that would include things that how much Should we spend on education and training? How much should we spend on RD and technology development? Because these would then drive the growth, not additional government spending or additional consumer credit.
0: All right, let's go for a very quick break. On the show with me today is Dr. Jeffrey Williams. He's an economist at the Malaysia University of Science and Technology. We continue the discussion after the break. Keep it here on today, I learned BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashran Johan, and on the show with me today is Dr. Jeffrey Williams. He's an economist at the Malaysia University of Science and Technology and we are doing a 101 on GDP. So Jeffrey, um, throughout the, the, the years, GDP has been synonymous with economic growth. Is it a reliable measure though of a country's overall growth and prosperity? It is and it isn't, is the answer to it. <laughs>
1: uh, and, of course, there are also uh, you know, uh, different ways of looking at that. If you look purely at the statistical measure of GDP, um, there is an error, of course, in how we measure it, because it is a very large number from uh, a collected through a very complicated system from very, very many different sources. So there is actually a statistical error, which can be as much as 3 to 5%. So whatever we look at it, it could be 3 or 5% higher or 3 or 5% lower. <laughs> because that's true everywhere, um, we, have to, we take account of that error. And the error is positive and negative in different times. So over time, we expect the error would be close to zero. So there is a statistical issue in how we measure it. But there is also a conceptual issue in how we interpret it because as we mentioned uh, at the start, GDP puts a money value on what is produced and a money value on then your income because your income follows from what is produced. But it doesn't capture things which, for which there isn't a money value. Uh, so for example, if we look at environmental um, damage, there isn't a money value on environmental damage or environmental externalities, for example. And so GDP will look at what is being produced. But if that's being produced in a way which is environmentally damaging, it won't necessarily include the cost of that damage. Right. So it will value what is being produced. Everything will be good, 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 good because we have more, 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 more. But, uh, and we can put a dollar on all of that, But we have a problem in taking out the dollar cost effect. And we can't take out the dollar cost because it's very important. For example, one of the targets of the economy framework is to increase the uh, percentage of women in the labor force, for example. Now, what we see is that there are a very large number of women who are not in labor force because they're doing extremely valuable work in the household. Right. And that isn't given a money value. Hmm. And as a consequence, although it's hugely valuable, we don't necessarily see it as generating an economic value added, but actually it is. And uh, if we were to put an economic value on that type of um, non-business, non-job related, non-commercial activity, we would see that the contribution of that group of people, women outside of the labour market, working primarily in the household, would be huge. And then under such circumstances, we would have a completely different conception of whether uh, women should be in the labor market or out of the labor market because we would say, you know what, actually there's more value being added from the, from what they're, what they're doing, right. looking after the household, looking after the family, looking after extended family. And if we were to take them out of that activity, we would lose a huge amount of social value by putting them into productive, claims that we would put them into productive activity, which would then increase GDP. And so there is a conceptual issue about how we capture value. There are so many things which have huge environmental and social value and environmental costs, for example, which we don't include in the GDP figure. And therefore, it's not always a very good of, um, as you say, growth and through um, uh, economic and commercial production. And it's not measuring prosperity in terms of quality of life and social value added or um, environmental costs, for example. So it has those very severe limitations.
0: Now, speaking of putting a price tag on it, before we go, you know, about life and overall well-being, right, even within the realm of what you said, you know, putting a dollar on it or a price tag, um, even within that, um, sort of realm, um, GDP doesn't necessarily tell the whole story, does it? Because sometimes the GDP of a country may be going up, 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 but the wages of 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 the people may not be going up
1: at all. Yes, you remember this target we had to be high income economy, and we've spoken about that before. Right, right. That's the measure GDP, GDP per capita. Right, uh, basically gross national income, not just gross domestic income, but gross national income per capita. And we mentioned that, uh, look, that the aggregate gross national income or the aggregate gross domestic product could increase, and the average would therefore be increasing, but it would be highly concentrated in an upper income group, and those in lower income groups wouldn't be receiving the benefits of that. So recently, we've just seen. It. So we can look at GDP per capita, and we can say, look, GDP per capita is close to the high income uh, level. It's not quite there, but it's close there. And if we just wait a few years, we'll get there. But then that that would be about um, just under five thousand ringgit per person. But then when you look at the average wage, it's only two thousand six hundred ringgit per right. person, and forty five percent of people. Uh, in formal employment contracts earn less than 2,000. So if you look at actual income, what am I actually getting in my wallet? It doesn't necessarily reflect the GDP per capita and that's because the GDP figures as a whole and GDP per capita don't capture questions of income distribution and uh, the uh, unequal income and it can very well be that a very small percentage of people have very a very large share of that, and a very large percentage of people have a very and so that's why GDP is not particularly good um, measure of overall uh, equality overall, overall income equality, overall quality of life and of course um, income disparity affects opportunities in life we, we know this, that people in low income groups have fewer opportunities Opportunities in education, in career development. And only on GDP is not is not necessarily the best way of thinking about uh, um, overall economic development and and uh, improving quality of life.
0: So why do we use um, GDP as as sort of like this yardstick, right? Because it seems like when you're just looking at the news, it feels like GDP is the biggest and most important indicator of how how well a country is doing, right? Why don't we measure the well-being and quality of the material life of the population as the yardstick? Um, Are there alternative methods to... Um, or, or preferred or better methods to calculating how well a, a people in the country is doing, um, as opposed to just using the GDP.
1: There are alternative measures. There's no question about it. there are many alternative. Measures. But the question as to why do we use GDP is because it is um, it's it's the most consistent over time and. It's the most consistent across economies. And uh, since we started to measure this formally in the 1940s, the concept of GDP in modern terms, depression, and people were concerned to try to understand what is going on in terms of production and incomes and so on. So that was when we have the concept. But we started to collect the data consistently um, in the 1940s. And it does have a consistent statistical basis, uh, and it can be measured um, with a, a reasonable degree of uh, reliability over time, and how it's measured from a statistical perspective. Um, it is more objective than alternatives. You see, for example, alternatives might include monetizing mm-hmm. non-monetary or non-monetized activity, like we just said, monetizing household work, for example. But then the question would arise, what would you pay somebody who was working at home? And how would you um, develop uh, a monetization process? It's not beyond the wit of man. We can do that, it is possible for us to do that. But there is m- much more subjectivity there. And in, in, uh, in terms of costs, how do you measure the environmental costs? And how do you monetize the environmental costs? Um, and then how do you net out the environmental costs from the environmental benefits or the economic benefits from the environmental costs? So that's an issue. There is a, a much more radical way of looking at it, which is the, um, the the approach that's taken in Bhutan, for example, which is gross. These are indicators where really we're looking not just on money terms or monetizing, um, economic and social. We're looking at overall social well-being, and so there's a much broader set of indicators as to um, uh, whether you are comfortable in your life. Whether your income is high or low, are you able to achieve the things that you want to achieve? You're comfortable, you have access to healthcare. you have access to social protection, you are um, some, somehow poor in terms of your basic day-to-day needs, and you have some sort of insurance and you have some savings and you have access to some form of um, some form of luxuries in life to make life uh, happier. So it's ways of measuring it, but that, as, as you can no doubt uh, understand just from trying to include into that portfolio of what makes people happy, it becomes very much more subjective, not just in terms of what we should include, but also how we should measure that in money terms. So that's actually why we use GDP, because it's, although it is subjective and it has limitations, we know what the limitations are, and actually, in the end, it is the easiest and expenditures.
0: I'm wondering, Jeffrey, if one of the reasons why we use GDP as like this global um, barometer of how a nation is doing is because, um, since, like you said, since the '40s, um, especially over the past four decades of um, neoliberal capitalism, and also, you know, when we look at the like gl- most of the global thinkers today, most of the politicians, um, their focus is on more of like just this, whether businesses are growing, um, you know, whether the the GDP is growing and, and that is a sort of um, measure of success rather than looking um, at how the people are doing. So um, using, for example, inequality, using um, the, the whether people have access to the quality of education and healthcare and so on and so forth as a measure of growth instead.
1: Yes, I think it is fair to say, particularly from the 1940s, which is the post-war period, that the main focus of economic uh, policy has been to try to increase income, and uh, national income and economic growth, and and that is primarily um, done through improving production, productive activity through employment, and uh, principally through manufacturing and industrialization, but now more recently, of course, increasingly through services and financial services. But the priority has been during that period from the 1940s all the way through into the 1980s, probably, uh, an emphasis on growth, achieving growth. And it's not just the neoliberal approach. People from the neoliberal perspective or from an interventionist perspective, whether you're from the right in terms of economics or the left in terms of economics, both sides have been very much focused on growth. And then the question arises, when we create this higher income, how should it be distributed? But then the question also, that's a question of equality and and social justice. But then, of course, there is also a question of how do we generate this growth? Do we generate this growth through high government intervention from um, an interventionist perspective, or do we generate this growth through less government intervention through a more market-driven thing? But the overall aim has been to increase economic growth. But now, more recently, probably in the 1980s and the 1990s, although the origins of this go back very much further than that, but it becomes much more current in the discussion, is the question that all of this growth is causing harm. It's causing harm to the environment in particular, Mm -hmm. and all of of this growth is not delivering um, income equality, or it's not delivering distributional equity. So we are achieving very much more growth, but we're still seeing very large numbers of people who are very poor. And that's just that's not just a question of within a particular economy. That's also a question of between economies. You have a large number of very wealthy economies and a large number of very poor economies. So to begin with, the question has been push for growth. Get, get the GDP up, get the GDP up in every country, and then globally get the GDP up. But now we are saying, well, there are costs to that. And so that's the question of the balance. There's always a question of costs and benefits. And so we're now focusing a little bit more on the costs of that. We are also now shifting into the uh, discussion of how should this be done? Right. How should we continue to achieve growth? Because the way in which the economy is changing with new technologies is much more a question of, we let the technologies drive the growth, and we have less and less involvement of labor, less and less involvement of uh, employment, because we automate a lot of the production. And what that means is that this growth is being generated by automated fourth industrial revolution technologies, which uh, then doesn't provide so much opportunity for people to earn a living through wages. So the question is, we can push for the growth, but then we need to look, uh, we can push for the higher income, but then we need to look at how that income will eventually be distributed for people who may not be involved in those productive activities. And that's an increasingly large number of people. You know, I mean, if we look at the wages data from DOSIM that we had uh, just last week, um, the number of Malaysians, Involved in formal employment contracts in the labour force is only forty percent of the total labour
0: force. Right.
1: So what that means is that many Malaysians and uh, expatriates and foreign workers are actually earning an income somehow or other, which is not part of the productive process in a formal sense. Mm-hmm. They are increasingly earning uh, money um, through, an, through an, uh, a much more informal way, and that means the economy is changing very much. And so the question of the total GDP is, will remain important, always remain important. But the, the questions of how is that being generated, how is that income being produced and how is it being distributed and how are pe- people ultimately going to uh, make a living become really very much the focus of policy from now on.
0: Now, we could perhaps discuss this um, on an entirely um, separate podcast in and of itself. But just in a nutshell, how does the conversations about degrowth that is happening, especially in um, Europe and, and US, how do they fit into um, what we're talking about today?
1: Yes, I mean, despite its limitations, GDP is one of the main indicators of the um, the wealth that is being created, uh, the income that is being created through economic activity. It is. And despite its limitations, that's just the way of it. Now if we are pushing, for example, particular agendas, let's say we look at the net zero agenda in terms of carbon, right? that will have um, implications in terms of economic growth. And it will have implications in terms of incomes. It will, and at the moment that discussion tends to focus only on hitting the net zero carbon target. Some activities produce carbon, some activities um, reduce carbon, or um, and you can balance that. Uh, you can balance those activities off so that the net carbon contribution uh, would be zero. But in that conversation, there is very little discussion of what are the social impacts of that type of activity if it reduces GDP. And that means that when we have these discussions, for example, in that particular example of net zero, it, it may well be considered a very good target to aim for, but there are social consequences of trying to achieve that environmental aim and the social consequences in many instances are much more urgent and much more immediate and they're much more damaging than the environmental costs. And so we have to look at the trade-off. You know, we often say, you say in economics, Thomas of a very good economist often said, there are no solutions, there are just trade-offs and we have to think about the trade-offs. So if we are looking at a net zero um, environmental policy what is the cost of that against the social and uh, implications of lower incomes if lower incomes are a consequence of net zero so that's something that has to be considered when we look at these um, um, mega trend policy um, discussions so speaking of
0: that right that social impact either positively or positive or negative could you provide um, examples of countries that have started to perhaps explore or incorporate alternative measures into their policy making, and how has it affected their approach towards economic development?
1: Well, the overall uh, aim for most countries is still to maintain economic growth and mm-hmm. it is still the GDP measure that is delivering that. But then the question arises, Um, You know, how do we how do we deal with that? And in many different countries around the world, we are seeing that this is becoming an an increasing challenge. And we often see well-intentioned policies which deliver um, unintended consequences in terms, not just of growth and distribution of income, um, but also in terms of uh, economic uh, value added, as we were discussing before and it's very controversial, but let me just put it on the table because it is extremely um, important. This issue that we were discussing a moment ago about measuring the value of household activity and the idea that we should increase the participation of women in the labor market, if we went too far and too fast down that road of pushing women into the labor market and taking them out of very important value-added activities in the household, then you may well see a much bigger social loss in terms of um, um, household standards of living, um, because people were taken out of that activity and put into what we often uh, consider to be productive activity. So, for example, if the value of if the monthly value of the work carried out in the household were three thousand ringgit a month. But um, women were one way or another encouraged to stop doing that and to go into jobs which were paying only two and a half thousand ringgit a month. Then you would be losing economic value of five hundred ringgit per person per month. So sometimes we would have policies which are well intended in no. that case to improve female participation. But until we are measuring the value added of female participation in the labour force versus the value added of female participation in household activities, which is huge, until we have these measures, we won't know whether that type of policy will be good or bad in terms of overall economic um, uh, economic value added, overall prosperity, and overall lifestyles. So that's one of the issues that in many countries um, people are, are struggling with, which is to say, actually, um, many of the policy um, uh, um, uh, agendas that we put in place are well-intended, but they might have unintended consequences. That is to say, we might improve access to employment opportunities in a formal um, sense, uh, um, uh, by moving people into the commercial and the business sector. But if we're taking them out of the social sector, then the balance in terms of the value added might not be positive. And that's something that we have to consider in terms of the overall agenda. And I don't think that people are actually considering that uh, in the way that um, we need to consider it.
0: On that note, Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining me today. That was Dr. Jeffrey Williams. He's an economist at the Malaysia University of Science and Technology. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dr. Johan, and this has been Today I Learned BFM 89.9.